You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Simulation theory says that we're all just part of a giant computer program and nothing is real. Could be true, maybe. My guest tonight is Matthew F. Ferraro, counsel at Wilmer Hale, which is a law firm here in D.C., and he's a person who recognized years ago and very quickly at that, that deep fakes were going to create serious problems, not just for his private clients, but for society in general. Matt, it's great to have you again. Gosh. It's a pleasure to be here, Elisa. Thank you. You know, I remember us talking about this. It's been like four or five years ago. And I thought, well, okay, this sounds kind of cute. And yes, it could be a menace. It's been a long time. You've really uh, drilled down and become an expert in this area. Well, thank you. And it is one of those funny things where, particularly with the negative externalities, which I know we're going to talk about, you kind of don't want to be right. But at the same time, you're sort of like mildly satisfied or gratified that you sort of called these things out years ago when no one had any idea what you were talking about. But yeah, we do live in interesting times. Yeah, the sadness of the clarion caller. All right, let's go over some of the definitions because I know we're getting, you know, a lot of things are being tossed around and discussed right now on popular media. And I'm not sure that we're getting all the information out or that all the information that should come out and the definitions are that clear. So it's pretty broad concept. But let's generalize. Let's start with what generative AI is. Sure. You know, I've done a lot of these talks. And what I've found is that it's helpful to take the phrase chat GPT, which is this program that everyone is sort of aware of now, and explain what the last three letters mean, because that's sort of a handy shortcut for the concepts. GPT stands for generative pre-trained transformer. And so the first word is generative, and that means an AI model, artificial intelligence model, that can create something new, usually in response to a human user's natural language inputs. And some models can produce text, and these are sometimes called large language models, and that's like ChatGPT or BARD by Google. They can produce images. There's an app known as MidJourney or video, an app called Runway, which does text to video. So they're generative. They create something new based on prompts. The second letter in that acronym is pre-trained. And generative AI is trained on data before you use it. It is pre-trained. And it often takes years for the AI, which is basically the software and the hardware, to ingest terabytes of data the size of several libraries of Congress. And there's some mystery to where all the data came from. I mean, a lot of these foundation models are what they're called don't disclose with any specificity where the data came from. Barred by Google says, for example, that it was trained on Wikipedia, on GitHub, on data from Google search and Gmail and sort of the internet and third-party data that it doesn't specify. But again, this concept is that in generative AI, the data has been pre-trained by the system before you use it. And the third is transformer. That speaks to the kind of training the model does. A transformer is a neural network, which is basically software, type of machine learning that detects patterns in large data sets. So there you have it. A general purpose, generative AI model, creates something new, often in response to a human's prompt based on large amounts of data on which the model has been trained to detect patterns. So these are very sophisticated pattern detecting and pattern reproducing systems. So they're impressive, But I hasten to add, they are not sentient. They are simply pattern detecting and pattern producing systems. Let me put one other definition out there, which is deep fake. 
that is a portmanteau of two words, deep learning, which is a branch of artificial intelligence and the word fake. And it refers to synthetic media, whether it's images or audio or video that is either manipulated or wholly generated by AI. Sometimes they're created by a kind of AI known as generative adversarial networks, which are basically computers that compete against each other but to, to produce and then to detect false imagery. The concept, this can get a little weedy. So the concept that I walk around with in my head is that a deep fake is a convincing media forgery created by computers. Okay. And the specter of that is concerning. Obviously, we're running into another election season and there've already been the use of deep fakes and ads that we're aware of, at least one, which wasn't such a good look, I guess, if for the people who for some reason didn't like COVID restrictions. You begin to understand some of the concerns that are being voiced during the writer's strike that is happening right now, because people don't know whether or not their data is being used to train these models, including sometimes their personal data, their medical data. You mentioned Gmail. Any of these things and all of them could have and probably were used to train models that are then monetized and deployed through applications. And there are some already doing this, Khan Academy, Duolingo, Snapchat, and others, but some tools can detect the written word, apparently, like have been trained, is one of the programs that is intended to be able to locate an individual's sort of IP, their content, things that they created. And one company apparently was found to have scraped sensitive information, including, and this is where I pause, voter registration information. Now, this is dystopic sounding to me. I don't want to sound like the Grim Reaper, as we often do on this podcast, I'd like to believe that Congress would take this seriously and have plans to deal with this stuff, although I know some of them would hesitate if they thought somehow it could inure to their benefit. What do we have? Anything well, from them? Well, there's certainly no shortage of bills that are being proposed. And we have a tracker here at my firm that's maintained by our public policy team. So hats off to them. And it's a very comprehensive tracker. It has lots of bills on it. But I'm not sure any significant legislation is going to move in this space. I guess I could be surprised. Certainly, there is no comprehensive data privacy laws in the U.S. that, that might apply, and we've been waiting on those for you know many years. There's no Gramm-Leach-Bliley prescription on the use of non-public personal information, and there's no HIPAA-like prescription on medical information by covered entities. There is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, that has, I think, limited purchase on some of these particular questions, but it's still out there. If I had to make an educated guess, I'd say it's most likely that Congress passes a bill that establishes a task force or something like that. And that's not nothing. I mean, that could be important for later lawmaking. There are several of those bills pending. One is called the CES AI Act, and that would establish a task force on AI governance and oversight. Another is a Digital Platform Commission Act, which would establish a federal body to oversee and regulate digital platforms. Actually, actually, I think that's actually less likely. But you kind of get the idea that there is interest in these issues. Certainly, there's interest by Congress in understanding the issues. But experience has taught us to not expect any kind of comprehensive legislation. Like I've said, I mean, we've expect, we've been sort of waiting, quote unquote, for a digital privacy law at the federal level for years, and that just hasn't quite happened. There's a bit more activity on the state level. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But in the short run, Elisa, I would say expect more of these issues to be addressed by product design than by sort of a general overarching federal regime. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it's been almost three years ago that a commission to study this was part of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And it was supposed to, I think, provide a report from its findings. I'm not aware of that report. Are you? Have you seen that? So, so there are a couple laws and a couple reports. So the very first law, and I wrote an article about this called the Federal Deepfakes Law, where it was in the 2020 NDAA, and it was to be written by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and it was going to focus specifically on foreign threat actors targeting national security issues. And you're right. I haven't checked in a long time, so I should say that. But it was supposed to be due, you know, a year later. And I called Congress. (laughs) I had a couple of phone calls where I just called the committee that the law said it was supposed to be reported to. And they were like, "Uh, yeah, we don't have it or we, we can't find it. So you know, I, I suppose it could be that I just haven't found it, but it certainly wasn't the subject of any kind of broad attention. There has been greater response to other bills that require reports. There was one a year later that required a report by DHS that came out. There was something called the America Competes Act, which required an FTC report on AI, including deepfakes that was published. So there have been those, but there was, you mentioned task force. There was a proposal, I thought it was quite a good one, by then-Senator Portman in the last Congress to establish a deepfake task force act, like, quote, unquote, that was the name of the task force, and uh, it did not get passed. And I kind of thought that it would be reintroduced this session, but as far as I know, it has not yet been reintroduced. But I, yeah, something like that, it could be effective. I mean, it, they come in a couple of stripes, these reports. Like, sometimes they really are not worth the paper they're written on. But other times, these reports point to important issues are the results of valuable interagency dialogue and can actually point the way for either lawmaking or rulemaking or just sort of private sector conduct that can be quite helpful. Okay. And, you know, that gets to one of the suggestions, I think, by Sam Altman, as you know, was to have a new agency that dealt with nothing else. I haven't heard any more discussion of that, nor any suggested appropriations from Congress. So I I don't know what's going to happen with that. I think having something central populated by experts and, you know, not by people who are just sort of looking to put their name on some sort of commission report could probably be pretty helpful to the American people. It it could be. I mean, I think the danger there is twofold. One is cartelism. I don't know Mr. Altman, so I don't, I won't speak to his motives, but I'll just say in other circumstances, in other points in time, in other industries, there have been, you know, calls for regulation by incumbents, incumbent companies that then use the regulation to redound to their benefit to basically. Oh, are we referring to Mr. Zuckerberg? Would that be? I, 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 I'm speaking only in general. I think he's becoming like a champion kickboxer right now or something. Cage fighting something. I understand he's as fit as a fiddle, but okay. So yeah, he, he did say things like that after which Cambridge Analytica. If there should be regulation, it should be driven by as disinterested an assessment of the public good as we can muster. So I would just say concerns about cartelism are concern one. And then concern two is you don't you actually don't want to stifle innovation. And I think that there is concern in like China, for instance, where you know, heavily regulated when it comes to the economy in general and AI specifically. And then there is concern now about the EU, which is passing the EU AI Act. It's, it's not passing it. It's considering it. I I have spoken to founders and companies, of course, potential clients of mine, and they are saying things like, we wonder what this might mean for our innovation. It's a tricky dance. You want to make sure that you guard against the truly bad outcomes, 
without getting so proscriptive early on that you make it less likely that you're going to you know, develop valuable technologies. And some of those valuable technologies might be valuable technologies that help to remediate some of the downsides. And one example would be AI-enabled deepfake detection, right? The idea that you're going to be able to have in real time software that's going to be able to detect false images by looking for you know, indicia of falsity and things like that. So it's a, it's a careful dance. There are, I mean, I, I mentioned one, this Digital Platform Commission Act, beg your pardon. There are like proposals out there. I don't expect it to be passed anytime soon, particularly in a divided Congress, but you know, who knows? Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. But I just feel like some of this is happening so quickly. And you know, one thing that I, I have noticed lately is the age of a lot of the people on the Hill right now is such that a lot of them didn't grow up with uh, fast moving technologies. Things did not go at the pace. Development of new computer technologies, new digital technologies did not occur at the pace that it does now. And there have been hearings in which it was apparent, as you remember, that they didn't quite understand the technology and were repeating maybe some drafted talking points. And it was painful because I think these are people who are concerned and I think they want to do the right thing. But the grasp of this and what you know the potential threat is or is not seems to have evaded them, unfortunately. And I don't know if it's an age thing or an interest thing or probably the latter at the end of the day. I don't remember how long ago it was, but I can tell you that in 2019, the deep fake non-consensual pornography was 97% of it as assessed at that time by an analysis of what was out there. And so obviously the concerns have shifted drastically, but to your point about the positives, I understand that this will also have um, tremendously positive impacts for medical science and that that is one of the areas, obviously, that we would want growth and not to stymie that. So in our first of this series, we spoke to Robert Weissman of Public Citizen, and he expressed serious concerns about how generative AI could be used to sway elections. And in particular, he voiced concern about a proposed rulemaking that the Federal Election Commission rejected on um, what he perceived was a technical reason. And he also felt that it was something that was within the scope of their authority to do. And basically, it would just prohibit the use of false deep fakes, any false information through the use of deep fakes. I, I just wanted to sort of raise that with you and see, since you've been a student of this and now an expert in this, what your reaction is to this kind of concern generally, not just his, but he's not the only one out there that mm -hmm. has expressed concern. The Association of Political Consultants, for example, has suggested a full-on ban. So I wanted to hear from you on this. I think it is a concern. Let me dive into this by saying that the concern for me exists kind of on two axes. One is exposure and the other is belief. And so on the exposure, it's one worries or at least thinks about how much people are exposed to false imagery, just as almost like a gross figure, you know, like does it happen in every ad? Are they, are they inundated by it and so forth? Or I should say imagery, video, but also text. I mean, I think that th th there is an aspect where, and this is increasingly true, where like fundraising emails are just written by computer. Now, I suppose one could argue, is that really falsity? Because you don't really know who writes these fundraising emails anyway. But you know, I, I put that out there, so bracket that. So one is exposure, and then the other is belief. You're inundated with this material. Do you believe it to be true, and does it matter or not to you? And I think that one thinks about both of those issues. On the exposure side, I worry intensely about the exposure, not really just of candidates, 
but of also election administrators, things that go to the time, place, and manner of voting. You certainly wouldn't want a deep fake of an election official who might not otherwise be you know, known to the public appearing on social media and saying, your place of voting has been closed. The election has been moved to Wednesday. Things of that. There's a radioactive leak at the place where they count the ballots, something like that. That sounds or, awful. Actually. Yeah. Or, or, or I suppose this is, has a certain particular resonance. They're cheating in the ballot counting, right? The machines are switching the votes, right? That would be bad. And it would be particularly bad if it came from a, a figure of seeming authority. So that's exposure. On the belief side, one thing I think that's going to happen increasingly is that there's a certain segment of the population for which whether or not something, media in particular, reflects the truth understood as events that occurred in reality, like whether or not that is true or not, is just like not a relevant criterion. This kind of gets to this notion that partisans just believe what they want to believe you had mentioned this ad that Governor DeSantis's people had put out online in which former President Trump, his rival for the Republican nomination, is seen like hugging and kissing Dr. Anthony Fauci. And that is manipulated imagery. I will tell you, it has a certain uncanny valley effect, which is something you and I were discussing before we started recording. The uncanny valley is this idea that it makes you uncomfortable, makes the viewer uncomfortable the side of, of falsified imagery. It, it's like deeply psychological where something looks off and you can just tell. Uh, and I think that's true for those images. So let's stipulate that the viewers know that they're not like real images, quote unquote, taking photographs, taken uh, of real life, but they express a kind of position that the viewer appreciates, which is that uh, President Trump was too solicitous of Dr. Fauci's advice and did too much, his administration did too much to, you know, sponsor lockdowns or push vaccines or what have you. So whether or not like those images actually reflect reality is I think perhaps less relevant in this line of thinking to the viewer than whether or not they express some sort of deep-seated position. And so in that way, like the falsity matters less because they don't think it's real. And incidentally, I would say you had mentioned deepfake porn, like that to me is a classic example where it doesn't matter to the viewer if they think it's real or not. To be kind of blunt about it, they're seeking a different kind of satisfaction than a sense that the that the video was revealing some truth. In fact, I think there might be a certain kind of titillation in the sense that they're you know watching someone who would never create that kind of imagery create this, you know, consume this sort of false imagery. So I, I think that sometimes we can misjudge the problem. Maybe it's a category error. I don't know if that's the exact right logical term to think like it turns on falsity or not uh, on whether and if only people knew it was fake, it would be OK. To your point, I mean, yeah. I would uh, just before we move on, I just sure. want to say we've had social scientists from both Stanford and NYU on and you make an important point. I don't know if you've also read the things that they have written and the studies that they've done, but they have shown that people frequently reshared false messages knowing they were false when it aligned with their political views. Sure, because it was a way I, I assume it was a way of them validating themselves to their tribe and to their you know partisans, their co-partisans. Then the question is, well, well, kind of what's the harm? And I think, you know, Tim Wu, who's was at the White House and is now back teaching at Columbia Law, like he's spoken eloquently 
that there is a kind of generalized dignity harm about just dealing with things, imagery that didn't occur in reality. They're just sort of like living in a space in which nothing is true and everything is possible is a kind of generalized dignity harm. And I, you know, I think that there's, there's some truth to that. Uh, I would just say uh, on the election stuff. So there's the use of ads to portray, you know, opponents badly. There's use of imagery to make you look better. And I suppose in a, some of the of a crude element, we saw this recently where former president Trump basically was photoshopped into a like a 1776 kind of imagery. I mean, I query whether that's really truly a deep, deep fake, but with an R taxonomy, we can say it is. So like it's made to look him look better. And then there's this kind of third category of yet leveraging the technology for some sort of interactivity. And this happened just the other day, but Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who is a candidate for the presidential nomination in the Republican Party, he released something called AI Mayor Suarez. And the idea is that you can, it's his, you know, AI face and voice, and that you can interact with him, you can chat with him, and he'll video, he'll speak back to you. And like that's a way of communicating and, and re- reaching his voters or the vote, you know, convincing them. And I think someone could say, like, this is just another way for us to meet our voters where they are and give them valuable information. And no one is deceived, right? They know that it's that it's actually not him, but the information that's being conveyed, you know, is inaccurate. I guess this is what they would say is, is an accurate reflection of his positions. So, you know, I think there's some value in that too. I will just note, because I think it's important to put the marker down, that increasingly states are legislating around elections, even if the FEC isn't. So, you know, Texas and California were longtime leaders in having laws on the books that bar deepfakes relating to elections in some form or another. In just the past two months, Washington State and Minnesota have also passed laws, and there's several others in other states that are awaiting action in the legislatures. Now, I think these laws are a bit like Swiss cheese. They have lots of big loopholes. They only bar very particular kinds of videos. They have carve-outs for disclaimers in some circumstances. That's certainly true in California. So it's not a comprehensive regime, but it does something, and it may be the case that by barring the worst kinds of deepfakes, quote unquote, the most egregious, the ones where they do trick people into, say, thinking the voting place is closed or something like that, they can make a material uh, contribution to the public good. Yeah, and I guess an argument could be made. Those things are are federal wire fraud as well. I find it interesting you're mentioning the states because I know we've had conversations about privacy laws, data privacy Mm -hmm. laws. And there really hasn't been, as you mentioned at the outset, any kind of comprehensive federal response to that that is of the scope, I guess, of what the EU has done or tried to do with GDPR, at least, and may well do with AI in in the future. But I wonder what that says, that the states are doing this on their own when we're talking about something that is transmitted over a medium that is in interstate commerce. The federal government seems unable to do it. So begs the question, what's going on on the Hill right now? But there are also agencies that have the authority, I would imagine, under certain circumstances to regulate AI. So what have they done? Well, so there's been some movement. Yes, it's a bit of Little League soccer. Let me say that where, you know, everyone chases the ball. There's a bit of that with AI right now where I mean, they run in the direction of the ball. Let's yeah, be clear. they run in the direction of the ball. So <laughs> or like, each other, whichever. Right. You know, like, so there's there's been 
lots of different agencies have set put out guidance or comments. The Federal Trade Commission is kind of regulating by blog posts. They put a lot of blog posts on their blog about what they would consider deceptive trade practice in the AI space. And, you know, I counsel clients to take those blog posts seriously. The National Institute of Standards and Technology put out a risk management framework several months ago, which I think is valuable and important. There was a joint statement by, let me see if I can get this right from memory, the CFPB, the FTC, the EEOC, and the DOJ about the importance of building AI systems that don't discriminate and saying essentially that they would use all of their existing authority to protect against discriminatory use of AI. The White House put out something called the uh, Blueprint for uh, AI, and that has a lot of interesting materials about what they consider to be the dangers of AI and also the benefits, and on and on. I mean, you, you can see, you got to get the sense. There's like a lot of, oh, I guess one that I would flag is that it's expected this summer that the Office of Management and Budget is going to put out guidelines for the government contracting and what kind of AI they're going to purchase. And that's going to have, I think, significant ramifications, probably, probably greater ramifications than people may appreciate just because of the throw weight of the federal government, the largest purchaser of goods and services in the private market. Looking at these issues, it keeps people like me busy, I suppose, if we're being blunt, <laughs> because lots of our clients need to think about what what are my regulators doing in this space? What are they expecting? And I think to your earlier point at the very top of the podcast, these technologies have frightened enough people, has frightened society that everyone is asking questions. And I think that might actually be for the good, which is that we might find ourselves in a position where we're going to develop the guardrails now when the technology is very good, but not existentially threatening and that we can develop the guardrails now and so that it never reaches that point. You know, that's interesting that you say that there was this combined sort of statement vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, potential discrimination. I guess where that would come from, as I consider it, would be the restrictions on the Privacy Act and anti-discrimination laws on collecting against individuals. Yeah, uh, it's, it's both collection and then, you know, generation. So, for example, right. if you used a chatbot or something like that, and you said, write me a rental listing that would only attract white people. You know, that, would, that would violate the Fair Housing Act. And there would be an open question whether the chatbot was somehow involved or liable. And this is a complicated issue. I mean, let me say, let me flag this, that this is not legal advice. It's a very complicated issue. It, it depends on whether or not Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act would apply to the platform and so forth. But you could imagine, you could sort of construct a scenario in your mind that this would be problematic. So like there would be that concern. So you have the thing creating discriminatory outputs that could, outputs that could be used in a discriminatory manner. And then there's this concern about the collection of data, kind of garbage in, garbage out. Uh, and the example that I use in an article I wrote some months ago with colleagues was uh, Amazon had built a hiring tool, a, re a resume review tool, and they had trained it on the resumes of successful applicants over a 10-year period. Seems kind of innocuous, but you know, humans being human, the people who they hired in general fit a certain demographic and gender pattern. And so the model basically taught itself to be sexist because it read all the resumes of successful applicants. They tended to be male. They did things like tended to play lacrosse. 
And then when it read resumes of, of others, it downgraded resumes where it detected things like women's sports, stuff like that. And so they had to stop using the model, obviously. And like that's an example where because of the, model, the data it was trained on, it produced discriminatory impacts. Yeah. And I think some of these agencies hold large data sets and you would not want a large language model or anything else training itself to search for things that would be prohibited, such as Mormon or you know African-American or anything else to, to populate that into some sort of a search would be pro- Republican or anything like that would right. be yeah. seriously problematic. But I do think there's a significant risk of that based on what I understand from this. And the question is, how to discover it before it has done any damage, such as employment discrimination or things of that nature. So it's good that they're t- these things are being discussed now, although to a degree, you know, this sort of machine learning, frankly, has been operational now for almost a decade. So it's good we're discussing it now as it seems to be picking up speed and interest. And certainly the um, IPO of NVIDIA is going to catch a lot of people with more interest in it than they have before. But let's talk a little bit about, because we're a national security podcast, I think it's important. And before we get into things like, you know, killer robots and killer drones and all of that, I mean, you know, we all, I don't know about you, but every Star Wars movie was important to me, every single one. and, And they were all brilliant. But I have to say it fuels the imagination when you think about the national security threats that could be posed by AI that just continues to improve and replicate, as well as, quite frankly, the possible use of deep fakes to divide Americans, which I think is, mm. quite frankly, our biggest concern right now. So mm. just wanted to get your thoughts in this area, since you've been thinking about it probably a lot longer and deep more deeply than I have. Well, certainly in the deep fakes context, there are lots of national security risks, and they really do run the gamut. I mean, I think one that stands out as a kind of worst case scenario is impersonation of a national leader at a moment of crisis. And so to address that up a little bit, it would be something like, imagine there's a situation where tensions are high on the Korean Peninsula. Going going to an Elton John concert while Paris is burning. Do you mean that? Yes. If that's a reference to something (laughs) I'm... I'm I'm, Macron. Oh, that's okay. Um, Not a deep fake, apparently. uh, But anyway, go ahead. Well, Elton John is phenomenal. Uh, I'll just say that. Love that movie. (laughs) That was quite a time to be seen on the front row, though. Not a good look. Won't age well. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, back to what I was saying. Oh, yeah. So like the, the classic worst case example, I've, I've used this before, is like, you know, tensions high on the Korean Peninsula. Maybe the U.S. and the Iraq are conducting joint military exercises. Unbeknownst to anybody, a threat actor has gained access to the White House Twitter or Threads account, something like that. And they blast out from the White House a video of the president announcing the detection of you know North Korean perfidy and announcing that there's going to be a missile strike to rid the world of the dangers of the Kim regime once and for all. And President Kim in North Korea sees the video, maybe only thinks that there's a 15% chance that it's real, but can't take that risk and launches what he believes to be a counterattack on Seoul, which is about like 30 miles from the border, killing thousands of people. And now the US and the ROC are in a position where they do have to respond and the might lead to an all-out war and lots of people die all because of a fake video. So that that would be like the worst case scenario in a video causing a war. I do think the many others, so on a much smaller scale, there's the use of synthetic media to falsify orders from military leaders. This is sort of like command and control confusion on the battlefield. Again, we're not at 
war anymore in Afghanistan, but one could imagine a situation in which Marines there were ordered to attack via radio from their commanding officer, a convoy of terrorists, and they did, and it turned out to be a wedding party of the local elder, village elder, and that, of course, you know, led to great trouble and loss of life. And then uh, it was a military defeat as well because of the our partners turned against us or something like that. There would be like those situations. There would be the use of deepfakes to maybe lend legitimacy to wars and uprisings. So perhaps in the war context, China invades Taiwan and there are deepfakes that circulate showing people greeting the Chinese, the PLA as liberators, the PRC that is. And so maybe that cuts down on support for Taiwanese resistance. Also, in the context of uprisings, right? I mean, it could be videos of anti-Muslim activities that anger Muslims, people of that faith around the world. It could be a um, the police killing of a young person leading to riots, right? I mean, what if there's another video of a George Floyd-like murder or like what happened recently in France? How might that inflame social tensions? There's the use of deepfakes to royal the economy. This happened just in late May, where pretty obviously fake images, at least obvious to me, of explosions at the Pentagon and the White House were distributed on Twitter by accounts that impersonated news organizations. And that led to a drop in the S&P 500 by 50 basis points, at least for like a, a couple minutes. You know, that obviously can be a short, like a short event for somebody who's prepared for it. Someone who took out short positions and then circulated the imagery that would just be like securities fraud. But also if you do that enough, you can roll the economy and that can lead to national security concerns. And the final thing I'll say, I realize I've gone on for a while, but the final thing I'll say is this sort of like slow destabilizing of the body politic through manipulated media, particularly on social media. And here I think of companies that have like very powerful recommendation algorithms so that they're feeding to viewers, maybe young people, imagery in such a way as to slowly change their opinions about things. And one could imagine information operations that take advantage of that, a particularly falsified video, adding fuel to that fire. So yeah, so there, of course, there are lots of, there are lots of very serious dangers here. Yeah. And I mean, I think the latter one is probably the most likely, actually, the very last one that you mentioned in the sense that I think there are a large number of people in this country have been persuaded that they need to step away from the social contract and just not participate and probably have some basis for feeling that way if they're living in a Rust Belt town and they're seeing, you know, sort of the people living in, in urban environments doing quite well. So I think that's a significant risk. And I find it very interesting that you've identified that as a guy who represents people in the uh, private sector. I, I, you know, I go looking for case law sometimes on deep fakes for different reasons, and I just don't find that much. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the very few cases that there have been out there, because I think there have only been about five. Yeah, there, I mean, there are very few cases. So there, there are now several laws in the States, but they, they haven't really been enforced. There have been some cases I'll point you to just two. And the first is in New York. There was a man named Patrick Carey who created deep fake porn videos of his high school classmates. And that was, I would say that was the allegation, but then he pled out to it. So it's true that he did it. And what's interesting there actually is that he was charged not with a specific deep fake porn law violation. There is in New York at the time of his activities, there was and is a civil law. So it's the creation of, of non-consensual defect pornography is 
illegal under civil law, so the victims could have sued him, but there was no criminal law. And so they he was charged with the felony charges of promoting a child sex performance because one of his victims was under the age of consent. He also was charged with possessing a child's sexual performance and aggravated harassment as a hate crime. And his case then led for a push for the creation of a particular criminal violation to expand the criminal code to include the creation distribution of non-consensual deepfake pornography. Last I checked, that hadn't passed yet, but I imagine it will uh, because of a case like this and this notion that while it was a civil wrong, there was this lacuna in the law where had he not victimized an underage minor, he might have not been charged with anything. So there's those cases, those like that, that, that address sort of the defect porn angle. Another one that I want to point out is one that was just filed. It's a civil lawsuit a couple months ago in California called Young Against Neocortex. And Young is a celebrity of sorts. I think he was like in a reality TV show. And he filed a putative class action on behalf of him and other celebrities whose faces are used in the Reface app, which is an app where you can put somebody's face on your face and you can use you know celebrities so you can put your face on their body and their 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 face on your body and so forth and so he he has a claim of a right to publicity he says you're violating my right to publicity my right of use my likeness in commercial work and i want to sue you on behalf of all these people and i put to those two there's precedent together. for that right elizabeth taylor as she owned her own image and i believe there is is precedent out of california for that in the civil right. context yeah, California has a strong right of publicity. You do need to show that the other party is using your likeness in a commercial setting. So you don't have sort of like a freestanding property right to your likeness in that way. You know, you don't like own your face in all circumstances. It has to be abused in this sort of commercial context. But you're right. The California does have strong laws on that. So we'll see what happens. And I think I, I point to those two cases because I think it sort of suggests where the law is going to kind of go. There's going to be individual dignity harms, like in the deep porn context that people are going to prosecute. And then there are going to be sort of these broader questions about rights of compensation, particularly in the civil context. So we will see how these things develop. So apparently a lot of private companies out there, and I say this, they do not want to have their data used in a way that could trigger a national security crisis. I think, you know, most people, even large corporations are not interested in, in any involvement and would not recognize they probably would not recover from reputational harm that would come from such a thing. And they just, they don't want to be a part of that. But are these companies prepared to handle the fallout if that happens? Well, I would broaden it a little bit and say, I think companies need to be prepared for all sorts of issues around AI and around how AI can be used to both harm them and how they can, in the way that you're describing, be sort of the victims as it were of malicious use. And so you asked, uh, are they prepared? I think it's yes and no. And I think it sort of depends on, like, on the company, but they they should prepare. And you know, I, I, I would say there are a couple things to bear in mind, a couple of guideposts. One is all companies should protect their IP. And that means, you know, registering all their copyrights, trademarking all their marks, maybe securing all their patents. And that's important for many reasons. One is particularly in the visual media context, as you and I were just discussing, there are lots of opportunities to use the strength of federal IP laws to protect your materials. It's certainly not foolproof, 
and it depends. But, you know, in, in one context, you can get material taken down if it infringes your copyright. There's a very famous case of Kim Kardashian. There was an early deepfake of her, and it was made by anti-advertising activists. And they used a video that had been shot by Condé Nast for Vogue. And they basically just swapped out her lips to make her look like she was saying things that she wasn't saying. And because Condé Nast owned the rights, the copyright to that video, they were able to go to social media companies and have it taken down under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which says if social media platform is put on notice, it has to remove copyrighted material. So like, yeah, just preparing in that way is smart, particularly when it comes to concerns about impersonation. It's important for companies to establish an authentic voice. I mean that both literally and figuratively. They should have a presence on social media. People should know the kinds of things that they say and do. And so if somebody were to come along and have an impersonating social media profile, people would be able to understand if it didn't sound right, uh, like the company. So I think that's important. I think basically what's engaged what's called social listening, know what's being said about your brand so that you can be protected from any kind of attempts to distort your position, if it's a deepfake campaign or any other kind of disinformation campaign, certainly companies need to prepare. I mean, I just think they have to think about this stuff like any other business risk. And it's it's the way that you mentioned, you know, how is their data protected and so forth, but it's also they need to prepare for being the victim of any kind of disinformation, synthetic media campaign. They should train in the same way that they train for cybersecurity harms. They should assign tasks, roles, and responsibilities. They shouldn't have to figure this out on the fly. And then it should be said, and we mentioned this just before, but there are occasions where they can litigate, right? I mean, you know, they, they if they ever are the victim of these things, the courtroom doors are probably not shut to them. So you got to be got to be ready. Yeah, and they've said many times though that they're incapable of protecting against foreign actors. And I think that's the principal concern. And yeah. that may be an area where the federal government is going to have to do something. And and certainly maybe the Department of Defense. It, it, it's interesting. I mean, like it is true. So, I mean, a few thoughts. Ransomware might be an interesting analog here because they're, you know, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the threat actors are overseas. And there have been occasions in which victims have been able, with cooperation with the federal government, to recover the money that they paid for ransomware, for instance, through you know, tracking down crypto wallets and things like that. There's also, you know, the US government can do things like slap sanctions on bad actors. I will say that it's not, and you would know this, you know this a lot better than I, but it is true that sometimes bad guys overseas want to see Disneyland and they do fly to the United States. And sometimes you can like arrest them at the airport or they're transferring planes in ski pole or something like that. So it's true that obviously your options for litigation and enforcement are a lot stronger within the jurisdiction of the U.S. courts, but you're not like totally defenseless if it's overseas. Yeah, but I'm sure you're telling your clients that still doesn't that doesn't fix the harm to your company afterwards. And you may not get back the money or the data lost, scraped or otherwise used. So it's a nice punishment for the people who did this, but it's so after the fact and it's so non-remedial in the fullness of time that, you know, hopefully you're advising your clients and hopefully they're, you know, setting aside appropriate capital expenditures for this kind of thing. You know, I hope they have people on their boards who are not just sort of ceremonious in, in their roles, but really have a desire to, as we say, we're inside the beltway, get it and understand that that may be money well spent and it may not be obvious way to contribute to shareholder value. It may not appear to be a great ROI, but nevertheless, 
it's a it's something that has to be done, just like locking the doors at night. Well, I will say to your point, uh, in the past eight months or so, I have done more presentations for companies that are interested in these issues than I would have expected. So I do think that there are interests. I, I guess I, if they don't get it, I get a sense that they want to get it. So perhaps it's a hopeful note as well. Well, you know, it's like when you're dealing with a teenager, you have to tell them everything four times, right? <laughs> so maybe more for, you know, four times. If you don't mind flying places and you don't mind doing these things, go for it. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's always good to talk to you about this. I, I'd like to come back and talk to you again in a couple of years, because I think we're going to be having a different conversation, just like we're having a different conversation today than we did so many years ago. where We really didn't know where this was going and what the threats would look like. Now they're starting to take shape at least as far as my imagination can go. And hopefully it won't exceed my imagination. Well, I would look forward to speaking in a couple of years and I promise it'll be me and not a deep fake. That would be really awesome. Yeah, don't uh, don't don't send me a deep fake, interactive deep fake. <laughs> All right, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Our guest tonight has been Matthew Ferraro, counsel at Wilmer Hale. We'd like to ask you to subscribe to NSLT on your listening app of choice. And if you like us, rate us. You can contact us with feedback on Twitter, at least for right now, at ABA NatSec, or you can always call us the old-fashioned way, which is through our email address, which is nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. We ask you to share this cast with a friend. It has been nominated for an award. We will give you a link where you can vote for an SLT, and we would ask you to do that. We'd appreciate it very much. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, and I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer, Rebecca Salih is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.